0: We just returned, obviously, from the Christmas holiday, the Christmas break, Um, and if your family is anything like mine, typically, part of your Christmas tradition, I mean, it's like set in stone, your Christmas liturgy, will include a, uh, a showing of one of the finest films ever made, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, featuring the acclaimed actor, Chevy Chase, Uh, And if you're not familiar with the movie, then you may not recall that one of the subplots is that uh, Clark Griswold, who is played by Chevy Chase, uh, he's a businessman, works at kind of a standard company, uh, family man, kids, wife, uh, trying to do his best, raise a family, be a decent man. But one of the subplots of the film is that he is uh, pooling his money, pooling his resources uh, in order to uh, put in a pool. And he's, he's told a couple of coworkers. He's like, I mean, it's, a, it's this big secret. He wants to surprise his family on Christmas with the announcement that he will be installing a pool in the very backyard of their home. And he's counting on the end of the year bonus from his company to help him uh, accomplish this great task. If you remember the film, then you remember that uh, the bonus hasn't come. And the holiday is getting closer, Christmas is getting closer. Day by day goes by, the mail starts to trickle down. He's not even sure if the mail's coming anymore. Uh, lo and behold, it's Christmas Eve, and still no holiday bonus has arrived. And he's starting to sweat. But there's a knock at the door. And late on Christmas Eve, there's kind of a, a pimple-faced courier who had uh, dropped the envelope into the seat of his car and had lost it, but had thankfully been thoughtful enough to remember it uh, and drive it to the Griswold house and deliver the Christmas bonus. The family's gathered, the door's thrown open, Clark has gathered all the family together to kind of make the big announcement. He's drinking the eggnog, he's getting misty-eyed, he's going to blow his family away, right? And he opens up the envelope expecting to get a lump sum of money to install the pool, to pay off the debt. He's already put down the down payment, non-refundable, right? And what does he get? Not a Christmas bonus, well it is, not a love sum of money, but a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. A membership to the Jelly of the Month Club, which his cousin Eddie reminds him is the gift that keeps on giving the whole year, okay? Um, but, jelly of the month isn't gonna pay for a pool, right? And so there's this massive letdown. And Clark is also a little angry, Uh, but there's just this massive, massive letdown, this high expectation of the money, and then instead being enrolled in a petty and worthless, in his mind, jelly of the month club. It's kind of, if you pay attention, It's kind of this let down feeling that we find in the first four verses of Luke 11. You'll notice that it's the Lord's Prayer. And we prayed the Matthew version a moment ago when Zach led us. Here in Luke, another one of the Gospels, we get kind of a condensed version. It's missing a few of the phrases you might have noticed. It's a very, very short and condensed version that Luke recalls. But if you notice what prompts Jesus, to give them the Lord's Prayer is the disciples' question. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And they say, teach us like John the Baptist taught his disciples. You see, it's a, it's a fair question. It would have been a common question for a rabbi, for a teacher, uh, an esteemed teacher of the law, teacher of scripture, which Jesus is purporting to be. Uh, it would have been a fair question. Teach us to pray like John has taught his disciples. You see, in the New Testament, the Gospels, there's this kind of almost mystery surrounding the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's almost even this question mark at times in the mind of John himself and certainly in the mind of the disciples over their relationship. I mean, how does this work? How does John and Jesus both fit into this kind of messianic showcase, this messianic campaign that has come before them. And they say, well, John is a teacher, kind of like Jesus, but on a lower scale, right? But he's teaching his disciples how to pray. Lord, won't you teach us? Teach us how to pray. And like Clark Griswold, their expectations are sky high. I mean, they're looking for a graduate course in prayer. They're looking for a master's thesis on how to formulate a prayer, how to properly uh, put yourself in the right position, how to posture yourself, how to approach the God of the universe. Lord, teach us how to pray. And they're asking God in the flesh, Jesus, the son, this question. And so you can imagine their expectation is sky high. They are anticipating their minds being blown. They're anticipating the heavens being parted and this unbelievable showcase on prayer to be dropped in their laps. But instead, if you notice, they're kind of given what in their minds, and even in ours if we're honest, what kind of feels like the jelly of the month equivalent of a course on prayer. what does Christ say? He basically says, when you pray, here's how it goes. When you pray, tell God he's great, because he is. Hallowed be your name. Tell him he's great. Tell him to go ahead and accomplish his grand purposes for the world, because he will. Ask him for three square meals a day. Ask him to forgive you, make you a forgiving person, and basically keep your feet on solid ground. And this this brevity, I mean, the simplicity and the brevity of the prayer would have been shocking to the disciples, and again, might have even felt like a letdown. It probably would have been like if you watch um, like sports on TV, you know, football game, basketball game. Uh, one of my favorite things is like in a basketball game, for instance, uh, they'll put a microphone in the coach's huddle. You know, so they call timeout, and there's like you know TNT will place a microphone in the huddle to give you kind of like an inside look into the great insights of these professional coaches, right? And if you notice, they'll call timeout and the coach will say stuff like, all right guys, we need to move the ball more. Move the ball more and play more defense. We need to, we need to, we need to, we need to try harder. Keep moving the ball around. And you're like, this is professional insight? I mean, these are professional, you know, highly paid coaches and this is the insight they're offering? Move the ball more? It's fair, but it's a bit of a letdown, right? You're looking for the professional opinion, and nevertheless, it's lackluster, right? Similar here. The brevity and the simplicity of the prayer would have been shocking to the disciples who are looking for the expert opinion on prayer. But what I want us to see this morning is that this approach by Jesus is strategically simple. There's a strategy here. Again, when Jesus speaks, when he teaches, when he gives stories, when even he prays, a word, not even a single word is accidental. Everything is purposeful. There's more here than meets the eye. It's strategically simple on the part of Christ. And inside that strategic simplicity is a glorious truth. I wanna start with that. What's the glorious truth here? You see, we're so familiar with this prayer that we oftentimes just gloss over it. But the glorious reality, really the, the scandalous reality of this prayer is that first word, Father. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, many people then and now, we understand God as otherworldly. We understand him as as powerful, as the great deity in the sky. We understand God as the judge. We understand him as this omnipotent, fearful, uh, sometimes even wrathful, unapproachable being, right? This infinite being who is so far above us. We understand that, and we concede that even. But your life will change. My life will change. The minute that we truly understand and embrace the reality that the God of the universe, who spoke the world into existence, is your Father, is your loving, Heavenly Father who also speaks faith into our hearts. He speaks light from darkness in the cosmos, and he speaks light from darkness in our souls. Because this idea of God being Father, it imports this idea of relationship. That the God of the universe, the unapproachable God who dwells in holy light, that God can be known that God can, we can have a relationship now with Him. He is our Father, and the scandal of this truth is just as forceful now as it would have been then. You see, for the Jew, he would have held in his mind images of the old covenant, right? Images of Mount Sinai, of God dwelling on a mountain of fire, of God giving these inflexible demands in His law. They would have had these images in their mind of of God being sort of reckoned that way. And the revelation of God as Father, would would have been striking. It would have floored them. But today, it's really a similar shock. We naturally assume, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you naturally assume, and you wake up really, and you naturally assume that the God of the universe is punitive and he's rigid, and he's out to smite his enemies, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're a little bit fearful that we're one of them. That's our natural default approach to God, that he's angry with us, that he's out to punish us, He doesn't have in mind good things for us, but only things of retribution because we know that because in the quietness of our own hearts, when no one else is around, we are keenly, keenly aware of just how sinful we are, just how imperfect we are, and New Year's does nothing but highlight that. Resolutions, right, are our attempt to correct things. You see, our natural assumption is that God, the God of the universe, is punitive and he's rigid and he's out for our destruction. If we even concede the idea of God at all. And we also naturally assume that, you know, he's kind of the God who like, he gave us the keys to the car and we wrecked it. And now he's out to punish us and ground us, scold us forever. And again, this is essentially what fuels New Year's resolutions. And on one level, they're entirely appropriate. There's nothing wrong with this idea of wanting to better ourselves, to better our bodies, <laughs> to take better care, uh, and manage our time, our responsibilities, whatever the form that resolution may take, it's a very appropriate thing. We can always strive for improvement. But we miss out on the glory of the gospel when we import into our spirituality, when we import into our spiritual lives this New Year's resolution Mentality. Again, it's not, that, it's not that we can't strive to um, mature spiritually, but the force of this passage, the force of this prayer, is that before we even lifted a finger either to sin or to double down on our efforts not to sin, before we even lifted a finger, God has been and continues to be that Heavenly Father who loves us with a love that is unflinching, that can never change, never falter, and never fade. And our sonship and our daughtership isn't contingent on any improvement that we can muster in the new year. But our identity, our sonship and our daughtership is completely resting on His mercy and grace, think about your own life, right? You did not choose to become a son. You did not choose to become a daughter. You did not choose to become a child in the household of your own family. Your parents did. The same thing is true here in the text. God is our Father without even an inkling of our effort. And that's amazing. You see, it's basically the anti-Star Wars if you think about it, think about this for a second. My son Wyatt, uh, he's four, he is absolutely obsessed with Star Wars currently. I mean, it is myopic. He is just consumed with Star Wars. It's, it's to the point, literally, where we're, we're putting him to bed and he's asking questions like, what's the, what's the name of that, that ship that, that, uh, that Han Solo drives again? What's the name of that? Oh, the Millennium Falcon? Oh yeah, the Millennium Falcon. And then he'll like go to sleep, and literally he'll wake up in the morning, walk into his room, and we open the door, and he goes, "Who's that? Who's that real hairy guy again?" It's like he hadn't even slept. Who's that real hairy guy again who helps the good guys? Oh, Chewbacca. Goes, yeah, 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 Chewbacca. But it's hilarious because he pronounces it Chewbacca, which is I mean it sounds like a like a cologne or something, you know, like a like a women's fragrance, Chewbacca, right? Um, that's how he pronounces it kind of cute, I guess. Um, but he's just obsessed with Star Wars. But we got to the point where he's four, and so we thought, you know, showing him the films, they're, I think they're rated PG, and they're made in the 70s, so like 70s PG is probably like G today, right? But, um, but nevertheless, we thought that's ah, a little too violent maybe for him at four years of age, right? And so we bought like these storybooks that uh, you press the button and they read to you, and they basically recap all the major storylines uh, in all the films, and he just, he can't put them down. He loves these things, he's obsessed with them, but it was hilarious because he got to the point <laughs> where, where he came to us one day with a book, and he goes, Dad, he goes, did you know that Darth Vader is Luke's father? <laughs> and, and his mind, I mean, his mind was blown, his four-year-old mind was it's just short-circuited, and he couldn't even fathom this, right? But if you think about it, that's like us, right? We, we can't believe that, or rather, maybe in Star Wars, Luke can't believe that the very face of evil, right? The face of the evil empire is his father. It's, it's scandalous. It throws him for a loop as it should. But now think about our story, not the face of evil. The very God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, who holds the world by his power, who sent his Son for your salvation, for my salvation, who spared no expense in chasing us down and loving us and still doing that even in spite of our fickleness and our failure, that's your Father. The very face of goodness is your Father the anti-Star Wars, what a scandalous but glorious reality that while all of human history has been busy actively trying to run from God or trying to run back to God by our own merits, God, without even consulting us, without lifting a finger on our part, God decided to settle up accounts to put away the debt that humanity owed him by sending his own son who lived a life that never needed a single New Year's resolution and then laid that life down and paid the penalty for our failure and rose from the dead so that by faith in him, anyone here this morning can claim the God of the universe as their father. What a reality, and our lives will change. They really will. Our perspective. Our confidence, our assurance, our ability to deal with trials, everything will change the minute we embrace this reality that the God of the universe is our Father. And so the disciples would have been shocked by this, right off the bat, this idea of God being Father, but it's also the simplicity of the prayer. Again, they're looking for a graduate level course on prayer. And Jesus gives them like the fast food version. And he gives them this incredibly simple prayer. So what is it about the simplicity? Why is that actually the prayer's best quality and not really a letdown? And for that, we have to actually look at the rest of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, go back to uh, chapter 11 and look at verse five. Because right on the heels of this prayer, again, nothing is here by accident. Scripture is not only written uh, purposefully, but even, in my opinion, structured and ordered purposefully. There's a reason why this story follows. Right after the prayer, there's this story that Jesus gives. Verse 5, chapter 11. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey but i have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within do not bother me the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed i cannot get up and give you anything i tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs and i tell you ask and it will be given to you seek I attended a Christian college um, that had a curfew your first semester, which sounds painful, uh, but it wasn't really that bad. We can get we can get in enough trouble in the dorms, uh, and I remember in the dorm one way we would uh, you know one way we'd pass the time one way we would uh, kind of entertain ourselves when all else had failed was we would simply you know uh, knock on the door and run you know walk down the hall knock on someone's door and run and of course that's like hilarious I don't know why it's still funny even now, um, but if you wanted to like up the ante a little bit, the doors of the dorm rooms would open to the inside, and so you would take a gigantic school-provided in the hallway, right? Thank you, school. Thank you, college. Take a school-provided gigantic Rubbermaid trash can, you know, the big circular ones, gray, industrial strength, and you'd fill it with as much liquid as you could, typically water, but whatever was on hand at the time. Uh, You felt as as much liquid as you could, and you would carefully rest it, you know, against the door, rest it against the handle so that it's at a nice angle, okay? And then you'd go and you'd knock as hard as you can, it's urgent, you know, bang the door, open up, you know, knock as hard as you can, and run. The running is important. It's actually crucial, the running part. and whoever was inside would open the door, right? And just—I mean, this—you know—the—the—the dormer would be flooded with water. And uh, this is what college tuition goes for. This is why we go to college. Um, and it just would ruin their night, but it would make your night. So I guess we're all sinners. Um, but again, just ways to kind of, kind of pass the time. I can remember that for some reason. Uh, well, the image here. The image here in this text isn't of freshmen in dorms desperate for entertainment, but the image here in this story that follows in the Lord's Prayer is the image of a Middle Eastern man in a culture where hospitality is prized, where hospitality is a virtue above many others. And he knocks on the door because he's desperate. He's desperate to save himself from embarrassment as a host. He's in a culture where being able to provide for your guest. Think about even in the Old Testament, all the stories that we see. When there's sojourners, there's travelers, they come into a city. And even if they're a perfect stranger, they will be welcomed in um, to somebody's home. I mean, think about even uh, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When the angels walk into Sodom, and Lot is uh, indignant that they come into his house. Now, he's also trying to protect them from the city, but this is, you you must do this. You must accept a guest and be able to provide for them. Here in this story, that's, that's the scenario. A Middle Eastern man in a culture where hospitality is highly valued, highly prized, and not a stranger, but a friend comes to his house, and he's desperate to save face. He's desperate to not be an embarrassment as a host. So what does he do? He walks next door, and he knocks on the door, and he implores his neighbor. Basically says, friend, I have this guest. He, he came. I know it's late. You know, he got delayed. He's just now getting in. The, the flight was late. You know, the airport's this time of year. He's just getting in. Uh, can I borrow a couple loaves? He stopped me a few loaves? And the man basically replies, get out of here. Because you know what time it is? Get out of here. But implied in the story, implied in the story is the man's persistence in his asking and his knocking. And if you pay attention to the, to the words carefully, the man locked up securely in the house finally gets up. And that phrase literally carries the the connotation of resurrection. The man rises, the man resurrects from his situation. What was he doing? He was sleeping. Sleeping in the New Testament often symbolizes death. Paul uses it many times in his letters to talk about the sleep of death. Christ uses it later in the gospels when he says that Lazarus is asleep and he means he's dead and his disciples are confused. So here in the story, the man knocks and the man inside, he rises from his death, he rises from his sleep and he comes to the man's rescue. But the text says he doesn't come to the man's rescue because they're friends even. What that means basically is he doesn't come to the man's rescue because the man has said or done anything correct. He doesn't come to the man's rescue because the man is worthy of being rescued. He's not even a good friend. He doesn't come to the man's rescue because he's offered a compelling argument or reason. It says because of the man's impudence or persistence, or your text may even say because of his persistent shamelessness. That word literally there translated. Means shamelessness. It's so like the New Living Bible, for instance, will translate it that way. And that's a better translation in this case. The word there it says, because of the man's shamelessness, the man inside the house, the figure representing God, will rise and he will come to the man's rescue. You see, not because of anything that he's done, not because of anything he's said, not because of any qualifications of his own, but simply because the man is such an abject failure at his responsibility. He's so shameless in his failure that the God of the universe will rise and he will come to meet his every need. Because you see the one thing required here The one thing required for God to rescue this man, the one thing required for God to rescue us, is not achievement, it's never been achievement, but it's simple acknowledgement of our situation. And again, if you think about structure being important in the Bible, you saw this, like Luke gave you a foreshadowing of this right before. You don't have to look there, but if you were to take your Bible and go back, the end of chapter 10, Right before the Lord's Prayer, right before this story, the end of chapter 10, we were given a quick glimpse at Martha and Mary. If you remember, they were both with Christ, but one was busy, right? Working, trying to do all the, everything she could. And Mary, right? Martha's busy, Mary comes and sits at the feet of Christ. And if you were to go back and look, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to go back to look, it says the Lord answered her, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. That sounds like us. But one thing is required. One thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. One thing's required: acknowledgement of our predicament, acknowledgement of our situation coming to the feet of the Savior and seeking His mercy and grace. And that's why Christ can say what He says after this story. When He says in verse 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. These aren't just like proverbial mantras. We can take those those truths to the bank. If we come to God acknowledging our situation, desperate, we'll find help in our time of need. And that's why Christ does what he does here in this section, because he recognizes that the disciples' question on how to pray is really a question on how to approach God. Now that's a question that humanity continues to ask, even in 2016. How can we approach God? Is it even possible? And what Christ wanted his disciples to see then, and what he wants us to see now, is that we don't have to first butter God up. We don't have to impress him. We don't have to take a graduate course in theology. We don't have to go out and get a theological degree. We don't have to, uh, to, to impress him with our fancy language and prayer. We don't have to come to him after we've finally strung together a 12-month period of success and goodness, but rather we come to him exactly as we are, no more, no less. We come desperate and shameless and acknowledging our sin, and we find that in that situation, the door will always be opened and the Heavenly Father, the loving Heavenly Father, will always be there to greet us, to welcome us, because of what the Son has done. And that's what Jesus wants to inform our prayers, our postures, and our years this year and forevermore.